Hello and welcome to today's episode of Juice the Big Screen, your movie review and discussion podcast. I am one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. And I am Corwin Heller. And we I started are here early to- there. I did not have enough time. That's okay. Keep finishing speaking. Uh, we've done this enough where I am still useless. <laughs> As you always shall be. Uh, we are here today to talk about a couple more of the Golden Globe nominees as we prepare ourselves for Oscars season. And we are going to talk today about everything, everywhere, all at once. And the, I don't even know what to call it, type of movie, Elvis. Uh, Corwin, where would you like to start? Um, at Queens? Um, Manhattan? I, I'm not really sure where this movie takes place. Versus Tennessee. I think, oh God, I don't know if I want to start with what I know is going to be excellent to discuss versus like, I don't know if I want to have the dessert first or start with Elvis. (laughs) Okay. Nice. Let's get it out of the way. Um, Cora and I talked a little bit about Elvis already, which is why there's some shared excitement there around it. So we'll get there. Um, so Elvis was uh, directed by Baz Luhrmann and written by Baz Luhrmann, Sam Brommel and Craig Pierce. The film stars Tom Hanks, Austin Butler, and Olivia de Jong. De Hange, I'm not really sure, to be honest. Um, film had an estimated budget of $85 million and a gro- worldwide gross of $286 million. Um, is also a HBO production, which means it's currently streaming. I'm not sure it's an HBO production, but it's a HBO Max release. So the funny money behind how that works might actually be deflating what could be an even higher gross total. Tough to um tough to know. The tagline for this movie is pathetically bad, which I think is fitting of the film. It is the man, the legend, the king of rock and roll. Fuck yeah, fuck you. Um, this whole movie might as well have been called Boo Fuck You, because I feel like I said that after every single scene. <laughs> uh, anyway, we're talking about it because it is currently nominated for, um, let me, hold on, count up the Golden Globe. Oh, just three. Okay. Uh, best Motion Picture Drama, Best Director Motion Picture for Baz Luhrmann, and Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture Drama for Austin Butler. Um, the film is about... The life of American music icon Elvis Presley from his childhood to becoming a rock and movie star in the 1950s while maintaining a complex relationship with his manager, Colonel Tom Parker. Uh, We don't operate with with the Globes or with uh, award season under the who picked what strategy that we typically do for intros to the films. So, Corbin, would you like to start for this one or would you like to start for everything everywhere all at once? I, I never want to start for anything, um, but I'll start for this one to give you uh, all of the spotlight. Go ahead. This was a special film because going into it, the only thing I saw, uh, no press releases, anything like that. I, I, I know enough of the story of Elvis where, Really, the only thing I was looking forward to seeing out of this was whether or not they discuss how Elvis groomed like a 14-year-old girl for years, Um, which, frankly, I don't know if they did or not because I was not watching closely enough, and I don't care to. But 
Austin Butler, watching interviews or just hearing him speak before he started filming this and after he finished filming, he never stopped thinking he was Elvis. And that's the funniest fucking outcome that you could possibly have for this. Because nothing we saw on display for this film is even remotely close to deserving a discussion after watching it. Like, we'll have this 20-minute discussion about this film, and you and I will never speak of this movie again outside of laughing about it as, like, an anecdote in future film conversations. So the fact that this is still Austin Butler's reality is... uh, That's perfect. Uh, Being said, I know for a fact that this film will get a nomination for best editing um, because you could just see it all right there, just the way it was uh, edited, which is uh, how I should say utterly unwatchable. I felt like I had to look away during the handful of scenes I forced myself to watch closely because I was getting nauseous with how quickly it was cutting the camera movements that they were adding for utterly no reason. The zooming in, the zooming out, there's real gradual touches that added utterly nothing than what I presume is an attempt to keep the jello minds of the TikTok generation entertained or enthralled with movement to keep them watching uh just to surmise this in a single sentence this is unwatchable this is not a movie <laughs> i feel like we should start with this we should start with this core principle is it, do you think it's a two and a half hour movie trailer because it feels like it's almost shot like a 2007 trailer it feels like it's a montage. This is a video collage. <laughs> this is not a movie. It's just not. There's no yes. narrative structure to this film. It's not a movie. This is the equivalent of when you're perusing an art museum and you see a video display happening. And it's like, I'm not going to sit here and watch this whole thing because I feel like I came in in the middle and I see all the images happening, but I don't want to stick around long enough to find out what it's trying to say because it's ultimately not really that engaging. But then they gave it $85 million and a Hollywood director. Now, look, you are, for me, Baz Luhrmann is a, a like Zack Snyder type guy where you're either on board for how he makes movies or you're not. And I hate Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> I hated Moulin Rouge. I hated um, fucking that Leo DiCaprio movie, ba- The Great Gatsby. I <sighs> hated Romeo plus Juliet. I'm not a fan of how he makes movies. And this is the culmination of that. This is horrendously bad. There is a six cut shot of Elvis getting into a car. This is one of the most pathetic displays of maximalist filmmaking I think you could 
ever present to somebody. And the audacity to have a two hour and 40 minute runtime for a film that says absolutely fucking nothing is insane. The takeaway from this movie is is non-existent. The takeaway from this film was there's a guy named Elvis. Go look it up. It says nothing about the character of the man. It says nothing about the actual life that he had lived. It says nothing about the music that he created. And it says nothing about the relationships he had with people along the way. D- does it, it does not delve into his relationship with B.B. King, one of the great American guitar players and one of the staples of the New York City blues scene for generations. And he is a minor character who just throws in wise black man lines every now and then. We're speaking of the way that they portray race in this movie is a fucking criminal act in this day and age. The fact that it is well documented that Elvis stole music from from black artists, giving them no credit and allowing them to allowing those black artists to, to fade into history unappreciated for their contributions to what became his signature sound is well regarded as being one of the major drawbacks to his character and a massive flaw to the persona of this man. And they gave such short shrift to it in the film and to such a point that they made it look like Elvis was doing a charitable thing by taking the music of big mama Thornton and just co-opting it as his own. When there's countless examples of musicians that white musicians that actually tried to bring the black musicians that they had built their sounds based upon into the mainstream light in such a way that it was meant to credit them with having created the sounds that they, that those white musicians tried to build upon in their own careers. And Elvis was such a failure at doing so that people attribute his songs to him that were not written by him, degrading the legacy of black musicians. This film does not fucking care about it. Tom Hanks in this film is preposterous. We should confiscate every Oscar he's earned for this dredge of a performance. I I mean, this is pathetically bad. The makeup and hairstyle in this movie is horrible. The lighting is bad. The director, the uh, editor of this should be shot in the fucking street. This is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire fucking life. I hated this. I hated this as an experience. It is not biopic in any myriad way it, it, it it's it's immensely bullshit how little can possibly be said or conveyed in two hours and 40 minutes it says nothing they took 160 minutes of our lives to say nothing at all what is this meant to do is this is no obscure figure in american history it's it, it's one of the landmark human beings of the 20th century whose death at 42 was international news. There's countless films, not just about Elvis, but starring Elvis that you can go watch and see how he behaved because they're written as Elvis basically himself to understand who he was in, in any type of context. This it's, it's, it's a pointless, pointless fucking endeavor. I'm blown away by the audacity. This is the apotheosis of failure in filmmaking. Fuck this movie. Fuck this movie. This is awful. I'm Corbin. I'm mad. I know. And that's why I love you. I want you to answer this. Honestly, two questions, two independent questions. One, what was your favorite part? And two, 
do you think this will be nominated and or win any Academy Awards? Honestly, not whether you think it should, but whether it will. I'll start with the second question first. And so the problem is that it's a real it's it's a really good question because I was going to bring up why this category why this film was nominated in the category it was like it's weird to see Elvis be nominated in the drama category, but to have a film like the Banshees of the Sharon be nominated in the comedy category, comedy and musical category. I know this isn't directly a musical film, but there are enough music scenes in it it's about a musician there are several full or partial numbers played to a large extent throughout the film you would think that'd be the category it would fall into and it more so leads me to think maybe it was just nominated for this best picture drama category because maybe it's a weak year for that thinking the problem is the Oscars have been nominating nine movies for a while now. And since the Golden Globes only puts five in each of those best picture categories, it feels like the odds of this getting an Oscar nomination are pretty fucking high. I don't think it wins anything, though, fortunately. I'd really have to like look at a list of films that came out and like see where it would you know slip through the cracks and make it in i do think it'll get nominated for something that too many hands will be greased by hbo to ensure that it's still getting advertisements when was it like march or april rolls around and we have the academy awards if it wins anything we need to stop caring about the oscars it's, it, it, it's, this is it's an over. affront to film to it's filmmaking. game over yeah. This is just an uh, it, is, um, it is an affront to filmmaking. It's it's something that I truly don't think I I I can't even like put the words together. I couldn't sit through five minutes of this film undistracted, uninterrupted. If you made me like go to a theater to watch this and we were reviewing it i would not sit there and do it i would stand up and walk out i've never done that for a film uh this would be unequivocally one of them i i can't think of the, the last first. time i held such a low opinion of a film prior to seeing it and having my expectations blown through in the wrong direction really see why yeah. did you have such low expectations going into it Oh, for one thing, I fucking hate Baz Luhrmann. Touche. Um, and for another thing, like, so much glitz and glamour, especially for a biopic, for me, never lands. Because if you're trying to portray the complexities of a celebrity, especially one with so much um, fame and notoriety as a guy like Elvis, portraying it in, in like, very, you know, razzle dazzle type of ways never feels like it's going to play correctly because you, it feels like you are you come in with a supposition you come in under the guise of look how cool this guy is or look how fantastical this life is and you're inherently going to lose out on some of the depth behind the character plus i saw tom hanks's fat suit it's atrocious touche touche 
I, I can't um, believe Tom Tom Hanks is in this movie. I can't believe he signed on for this. What he was looks he like thinking? a fucking clown. What was he thinking? Like, not only signing on, like, I, I get why you would theoretically sign on to a film like this, but what was he thinking with that portrayal? Well, and, and I don't know. That how was like one thinks... of the most on Tom Hanks performances I've ever well, seen. I mean, that accent's nuts. That accent is fucking nuts. It's so bad. But I don't get how he doesn't read the script. And like, because there's several sections of this movie where like he gives narration. Like it's his VO, but it's not. There's no the through line of him in that hospital room, like isn't really tethered to anything. Like, so if you haven't seen the film to try to capture the feeling of the movie is Imagine I was going to imagine you were going to make another Spider-Man movie, right? Like it's time for a new Spider-Man, but there's been three different iterations in the last 20 years. Everyone knows the backstory. So we're just going to kind of like rush through the beginning of Spider-Man. We're going to show you like the Uncle Ben situation. We're going to show you the radioactive spider bite, but we're just going to kind of like not quite montage like it's a little bit longer per scene than a montage but it's not really we're, 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 right. we're pushing past it like Imagine- how the new batman was where they just they didn't really do the whole origin story they didn't show his parents getting killed they didn't show like it's just oh this is a guy who's already out there in the night there's oh, no I batman they- begins I, I mean, even like they will show you the beginning scenes, but we're just going to we're just going to kind of try to get it. past it. Yeah. OK. Again, okay. a little bit longer than a montage. Like it's not quite rocky fast with a training montage, but it, it's it's meant to it's meant to be there to tell you we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. So you feel a little bit of anticipation of getting into the main plot. Right. Like there's a feeling of there's an unsettled right. feeling like I know I'm not going to be in this the whole time. So I'm kind of waiting for us to get to where we're going to be. Um, let, you know, like it's laying the groundwork. It's that for two hours and 40 minutes for the first 30 minutes of the movie. I kept wondering, when are we going to catch up to where the movie wants to be? Because it 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 has that kind of pacing. Where it's like, yeah, 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 you know, he, everyone thought he was black and he wasn't black and, you know, he was playing with this country guy, but then he got famous. Like, they they breeze past that whole little stretch at the beginning where he's uh, a minor player for Tom Hanks's character and then becomes the main star in such a way where you go like, oh, we're trying to get up to speed somewhere. And then it just never stops. It just keeps going. All the way till he dies. <laughs> you just honestly, just if they stop. had an hour long, uh, like what? What's the like a bottle episode almost of just him in that bathroom taking a shit, just like reliving, just like mentally fried, just flashbacks throughout his life. I think that would be more interesting than the shit we got. Hour and a half of a man on a shitter? Count me in. I'd rather watch two hours and 40 minutes of Hulk Hogan's sex tape. This was so bad. Uh, Frankly, I would rather sit through Hulk Hogan's sex sex tape. You're spot on. And I will say, let me know what you think about this. I do think Austin Butler did a good job. But 
I feel like it was one in service of nothing. And two, it took me a kind of a while to come to that conclusion because all of his lines, like there's no continuity between the scenes, you know, like every line is basically devoid of context. So, and because Elvis is such a caricatured persona, it like takes a while before you can decide if what's happening is essentially comedy or not. But I, I did at the end of the film decide, I thought he did as well of a job as he possibly could. Yeah. I don't even have an opinion. Uh, you can't escape the question though, Josh, what was your favorite part? Oh, right. Yes. Um, my favorite part was near the beginning with the uh, realization that Elvis was white over the radio. <laughs> He's white. He's white. He's white. Oh, yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> How about you? Did you have a favorite part of this fucking movie? Uh, when he died. Oh, how often? Sorry. How often did you think him and his mom were going to kiss? Because <laughs> I felt like they were about to kiss every scene they had together. Uh, I mean, if this didn't, I thought this was turning into the Hulk Hogan sex tape. I, I like. I kept forgetting that what's her face was Elvis's mom because every scene they shared together. I felt like she was about to just get, smack him on the lips, just tongue down his throat. <laughs> so bad. And, cause, and one of the things that also made it like impossible to, to, to really like latch onto is the fact that, and this is what I meant by, I mean, bad makeup and hairstyling, um, which is, I, I use hairstyling because it's an Oscar category. They never change how old Baz, or not Baz, um, Austin Butler's meant to look. Like Elvis shows no sign of aging all the way up until he's in that fat suit at the very end of the movie. And to that end, like it had, it became so tough to figure out how far into his career we were. And that's part of what makes this movie so ineffectual. Like if we're to understand that there was a low point in this film, which I think we were meant to understand, because you move through everything so rapid pace, it never really feels like it. Like mm -hmm. that scene where they're standing behind the Hollywood sign and Elvis is talking with that guy from Stranger Things about the Christmas special thing. I, I was watching it and I'm like, oh, I think they're trying to say Elvis isn't doing so hot in his career right now. But we've been moving so quickly. I don't really have any sense of like i haven't seen this family struggle they breeze past his drug addiction let me tell you they just breeze right there's one hallmark lifetime movie-esque scene where his wife throws a bottle of pills at him it doesn't matter the women you bring home through the side door at night it's these pills fuck you Wait, Fuck you're telling you. me you're telling me his fucking death wasn't just from him being you know a little overweight. What? <laughs> yeah, at the sprightly age of 42. Yeah, no, a little bit more going on there. And and that's the movie. Th and that's every Baz Luhrmann movie. It's shallow. It's so shallow. Like, this is a kid who grew up in, in, in you know, the broke South 
you know, j- like just post Dust Bowl era and came up in the formative years of a brand new genre of music. And we've seen successful versions of that movie. The Straight Out of Compton movie is a great comp. These are a, a group of dudes who are coming up right at the 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 um, event horizon of a new genre of music being formed at which they played a pivotal role and came up from a rather you know destitute uh, hometown environment. And that movie works so well with significantly more characters that they needed to ascribe personalities to in a shorter runtime. Fuck, I feel like we got a deeper understanding of Elvis from that one scene in uh, in Forrest. Jesus. Forrest Gump. I'm fucking lost. No, I know exactly what you mean. I I think there's a a spare scene of Elvis in like one of the other better. I feel like there's a random Elvis scene in Ray. I might be making that up, but like I've definitely seen a scene of Elvis recording something at like Sun Studios or some shit. I can't think of what it was from, but it doesn't matter. I I mean, but that's what I also meant in my giant rant at the beginning of this. Like if you just go watch a pick a fucking Elvis movie, who cares? You'll have a better understanding of who Elvis was from watching one of the movies he's in, even though he's just playing a role because he's not a good actor and it'll come through about kind of generally who he was. I mean, to see nothing but adoration from everybody is not going to paint a broad picture of who a man was. All all Elvis was in this film was a uh, an object for women to scream at and in, in not an interesting way. You know, it made no because there's so much commentary that like Elvis's career spanned the 50s to the 70s. And so much happened in the culture of America in those times. I mean, we shifted from a period in time in which Elvis was, had to have had to be filmed from the waist up when he was on TV because his gyrations were deemed too sexual for television to a point in the seventies where, you know, we're, we're, we're post the Doris Wishman era of filmmaking. And we're seeing, uh, you know, a lot more lewdness and sexuality being represented on TV screens or at least in, in, in mainstream cinema. I, I mean, it's, it, it's wild to not touch on fucking any of it in service for what is only lavish set pieces that amount to nothing fuck this movie i I hate this movie man i hate that we had to watch it i do too how that's the worst part they nominate this for awards award shows i i could have got my entire life not having seen this movie because i knew i wouldn't like it and the goddamn award people made me watch it fucking anyway (laughs) This is how I felt about when we watched the net last year. Fuck that movie too. Wow, I've wiped that from my memory. What the fuck is that about? That was uh, Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard have a daughter, and but she's a puppet, and Marion Cotillard gets famous, and Adam Driver kills her, and then the puppet daughter becomes a real daughter at the end. I have utterly no recollection of this film whatsoever. Because it's horrible. It was a horrible, horrible movie where all of the it was a musical and all the songs were recorded on the day. Like it was not pre-recorded songs and it, they all sounded like garbage because it was a bunch of non-singers like trying their best, which did not work. Uh, that and it sounds sucked. more familiar, but I still could not picture a single frame of this film. Good for you. 
Um, also, Loki, I'm really sick of Adam Driver. He's he's overexposed. I've seen him in too much stuff. I don't want to see him anymore. Fair. I don't know if I'm at that point yet because I haven't seen his entire disc disc filmography. I'm, I'm done. Yeah, I'm done talking for a while. All right, let's move into final ratings and reviews on this. Um, so we can just fucking stop. Um, you started the discussion, so why don't you take the first rating and review? It's been a hot minute since this rule of mine has come up. But seeing as I physically could not sit through this film and could not watch it, it's an automatic zero for me. Oh, this is straight zeroesville, baby. I, I mean... This should be shown in colleges for an understanding of the improper way to conduct Maximus filmmaking. This is so bad. It's so it, it is vapid. I, I I'm blown away that like people saw the dailies of this and weren't like Baz, dude, stop. I'm I'm blown away that this cut of the film got approved by a studio. It's mind blowing. It is straight up Zeroesville. Do not watch this. Um, fuck this. It is nominated for the three words as, as I had mentioned earlier. It's currently nominated at the at the Golden Globes for um best performance, motion picture, drama. Do you give it any chance in um that best picture? I'll say category um at the Oscars. No. And actually, you know what? Let's just save this general. Uh, award discussion for when we actually get the Oscar nomination. So fuck the rest of these three. Let's talk about a better movie. <laughs> I'm I'm burned out of this one. Let's let's get into a better one. Let's talk about uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, it came out this year. The film was written and directed by the Daniels. That is Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Um, the film stars uh, Michelle Yeoh. Stephanie Shu and Jamie Lee Curtis. Shout out also to Kehei Kwan, Kehei Kwan, um, in what is his return to acting after almost twenty years. He was formerly Short Round, um, in the in the Indiana Jones films. So it's been um, he acted after those films, but it has been quite some time since he has been in a mainstream production. Uh, the film had an estimated budget of twenty five million dollars and a worldwide gross of one hundred and three million dollars, which is the biggest A24 gross uh, of any of their productions. So really quite a big film for what is still a relatively independent studio. Uh, the film has no tagline that I saw, which is fine. They don't all need them, which is the best. The film is about an aging Chinese immigrant is swept up in an insane adventure in which she alone can save the world by exploring other universes connecting with the lives she could have led. Uh, we are discussing this film, one, because it's really good, but also, two, because it's currently nominated for a few Golden Globes, um, which I just scrolled right past. Uh, they are uh, Best Director Motion Picture for The Daniels, Best Motion Picture Musical or Comedy, Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role, in any motion picture for Kehei Kwan, best performance by an actress in a supporting role in any motion picture, Jamie Lee Curtis, best screenplay motion picture for The Daniels, and best performance by an actress in a motion picture, musical or comedy for Michelle Yeoh. Um, uh, Corbin started the Alba's discussion, so I guess I'll start this one. Um, actually, I'm going to start this, Corbin, with a question for you um, before I come go in full, full tilt. 
Uh, did you see the Daniels previous film, Swiss Army Man? Uh, it's been on my list of, hey, I really need to watch this for a long time, and I've never gotten around to it. Okay, so I saw Army Man. Army Man had been a while ago now. It came out in 2016, um, and as far as I know, and I'm looking, uh, there's a movie called Omniboat, a fast boat Fantasia that I have no idea what that is. But this, for me, is really the ultimate, like, this is the, the follow-up to um, Swiss Army Man. And Swiss Army Man is a crazy movie that invents its own reality and its own rules and manages to create a very successful microcosm or you know small self-contained world and this being kind of a follow-up to to that wild little adventure felt very fitting it's broader in scope it's it's much more um oh this is what i'm looking for uh it's bigger i'll settle in with that and it works so effectively and it's also coming out at a really good time because it introduces this concept of multiple universes or multiverses or what have you at a time which it seems as though we're a little bit inundated with that you know marvel's been having a multiverse thing and there's been a little bit more fun being had with it in um you know tv and film in general as as it's become kind of a a hot button uh concept and so to have a little bit of the legwork of that done for you in a general public understanding of it, as well as the explanation that they give in the film, I, I thought, you know, worked out very well. But this is the exact type of movie, the exact type of science fiction, comedy, action. This is the a, a cross-genre blend that I think everyone is looking for um, – with with like the future of film it pulls at heartstrings without being overwrought it introduces high-minded science fiction concepts without being boring or too too chock full of plot holes um it introduces a lot of you know foreign elements or you know broader diversity without i think drawing too much ire of people who would complain about those things um and it does so in what is, I think, so fittingly the legacy of other absurdist and surrealist filmmakers. Like, I think this is a direct heir to Hodorowski's Don't say it. Um, <sighs> Holy Mountain. I really think this is. This is so Holy Mountain-esque for me. And this is the type of movie that I think is the reason films like that are so important. Because those films that are on the outskirts of what is, you know, mainstream cinema have broad-reaching effects on the future films that follow it. And this feels very much so in that vein. Um, I'm so excited to talk about it. I loved it. Corbin, tell me your thoughts. Um, I thought it was almost like the perfect family comedy where it was expertly crafted, expertly acted top to bottom. I don't think there was a bad performance that could be found in this entire film. Um, it was extremely poignant with the emotional weight. I think the levity of the comedy was just expertly woven in throughout. And the, like you said, the absurdity of it, just it had that je ne sais quoi, just that perfect little touch. 
the only thing that I was getting caught up on throughout and couldn't mentally get past while watching was the lack of continuity with the rules of how they controlled the universe and matter around them. And as an easy-to-watch family film, that shouldn't really have any effect whatsoever. But as someone like you and I have, we've watched a lot of universe films and time travel films, and it always falls down to how many plot holes can I find in this that just I can't explain and I focus heavily on it every single time, even though I know I shouldn't. I just couldn't get over that final hurdle. Can you give me that, an example of what you mean by the the interacting with with the matter around them? So joy is um, conscious in every universe and has all thoughts and memories and control over every universe she is operating in because of the way her brain fractured during her quote unquote training. And we see her having the ability to control and change matter as she describes it. You know, once you understand that all everything is, is a bunch of atoms vibrating around each other in different configurations, you can control and change it at, at will. And we see her doing that throughout the film. And then like halfway through, she just stops doing it whatsoever outside of wardrobe changes. And it just leaves a plot hole of, you know, she's fighting through all this. And and I know to an extent it is her fighting for notice and fighting to be saved rather than fighting to truly defeat her mother. But it just kind of is like, ah, it, it, there's too much left unexplained here that is so physically not possible to be explained and would ruin the film itself if it were taken literally that I almost don't have I'm stuck in a loop of thinking whether or not it is a roadblock I'm stuck on or something that just needs to be completely tossed out and and forgotten for uh, just plausibility of filmmaking I think you're getting caught more in a character choice than you are a uh, a plot hole of any kind. Because I, I think it was... That it's a conscious choice that she's not doing so? Right. Or at least lesson. Like, she does... You know, they have that one uh, big fight scene where they traverse several universe types and within there you know there's like the sword fight where the sword keeps becoming other things you know there there are other moments later in the film oh, that oh, oh, come into play they show um oh what was the mother's name uh evelyn uh, evelyn thank you they show her changing her uh mop into an axe showing that she has the ability to do so as well and then never uses it in any other scene. That's not true. That she uses it in the big final climactic fight scene going up the stairs. What does All she create the... with it? Well, she uh, uses she... it to she uses it to kind of break into their or not break into, but like see into their minds 
No, she she but, turns. Um, I forget what the one guy had, but she turns whatever it is he was holding into that perfume spray bottle that reminded him of his wife. She turns whatever. Uh, one of the two Daniels is actually in the film. He's the white dude who was had the sex room in the IRS building. She he she turns whatever it is he was swinging at him into a uh, ball gag that she shoves back mm-hmm. in his mouth. There were a few others going up the stairs. Those are the two that's, that's fair to me. But, that's fair. Yeah. I I guess I am just it. It's like uh like another video game trope where it's just like ah uh, you have this super weapon that is so powerful if you used it on every enemy the game's pointless but you still have to have it in there for you know the sake of moving the story along but there, it's so hard to balance. Well, and I, I it, think this, it's, this, effective... it's it's small potatoes. It's small. I think potatoes. it is also effective though because it. it... The fact that it doesn't come into play as heavily as it did in the the second act of the film, I think also serves to what the film was saying, which is, you know, like Evelyn's whole point was I need to get all of the same ability to basically level the playing field, to to negate the advantage that Jobu Tapaki has in this fight. And once she does that, like there is really no point to continuing down that road in those battles between joy and evelyn because she was right like it did level the playing field in that way and the fight wasn't about you know some mortal combat fight to the death it was a more philosophical battle about you know ceasing this numbing pain this nihilistic existential crisis with the sweet release of death rather than was about continuing some you know some murderous want um, some you know matricide of some kind. So, yeah, fuck you, bitch. But I guess let's talk about the plot of the film a little bit. It is funny because it is a very contained story. For and what I mean by that is the version of Evelyn that we track from the beginning doesn't leave the IRS building until the end of the movie. Once she gets to the IRS building in the you know tail end of the first act, that is where she stays for almost the entire film. We track other versions of Evelyn of, of Michelle Yeoh. Um, for instance, we we track what is meant to be a a very close tied version of Michelle Yeoh that doesn't get roped into. Alpha Wayman's um, uh, hope of conquering Jobo Tapaki, you know, they like they they go home afterwards and aren't interrupted by the events of the film, so that we can kind of see in parallel what is happening. You know, Evelyn and Wayman talking about the divorce in the the car on the way home, setting up for the party, all the stuff that isn't occurring in the main version of the of the world that we are concerned with because of the battles and fights and navigations towards other universes um i don't know, did like because it's funny because the film goes so many places that it really doesn't feel like it's actually yet quite as contained as it is what did you think about i guess the overall like set pieces that the film employed i thought it was varietyed enough to 
show us and, and kind of give you the feeling that, hey, this is multiple, this is, you know, a multiverse film. Like this is all these different possibilities and it, it's enough uh, different pieces where you can really see how far things could go, you know, just by the, you know, the butterfly effect, you know, little choices taking you all over the world and, and to every different facet of life while keeping it centered around the story we should be caring about and not diluting it so where you're kind of losing focus of the person you're you know meant to be watching what i also like about that because you know there's been a a number of multiverse movies and, and you know you think of also all the marvel movies i think come top of mind and despite the fact that there are multiple universes the 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 ones that you're following are still sprawling and it, it i think lessens the impact of having there be multiple universes the fact that the a story stays so contained and allows for the multiple other universes to have their own you know set pieces and locations kind of helps weigh the impact of what it the film really means by there are multiple universes, you know, like to have scenes that take place back in China under the guise that Evelyn never left makes it much more impactful uh, in comparison to all of the U S based scenes. Um, Speaking of the character of Evelyn, it is a very interesting story because she is a very imperfect hero. And there are, there are, is learning that is needing to be done by all characters in a what is I think a very extremely heightened <laughs> concept for a film, but ultimately very relatable family dynamic, where Michelle Yeoh has a perception of herself, or Evelyn Wong, I should say, has a perception of herself as you know the saving grace of the family. She's working herself to the bone to try to do what she understands as her her best for her family, but lacks an emotional availability that makes her sacrifice necessarily well worth it. She is in a dissolving marriage because she doesn't respect her partner. And she is in a continuously trying relationship with her child because she has not made any effort to connect with her kid at the same time, seemingly trying to gain the approval of her father while being incapable of doing so because her father will never view her successes as successes. So kind of like chasing, um, chasing the dragon, so to speak. Uh, and in that, you know, you see some of the perfection imperfections of Evelyn with how she most clearly uh, is not quite able to handle her daughter's homosexuality. Uh, so I guess broadly speaking, Corwin, what did you think of the Evelyn character? Oh, what a broad question that I'm going to struggle to answer. Um, I really appreciated both the internal and external self-realization and growth that she went through, both about the things that she needed needed to work on about you know coming to terms with in her own life and how she's projecting her own feelings and and basically the difference between what she thinks and what she shows and kind of understanding hey for a teenage daughter and husband who is going through this struggle with you there are different perspectives in life and and 
it's uh, frankly something that more and more people need to realize is the case um and i i really enjoyed that little journey we went on yeah and it feels very much so it's wild to think that it feels like we have had so many of these multiverse type films and yet none of them employed the multiverse idea in the way that this film did, which was available as a learning experience for the main character, you know, to understand themselves mm -hmm. better and to improve. And I, that's one of, you know, this is one of the frustrating things about Marvel in general, which is why I've really fallen off over the course of the last, well, fucking decade at this point. But, you know, it, it, and even speaking more generally in these types of like, kind of like comedy action films, you know, if you watch, um, cause Michelle Yeoh did a number of Jackie Chan films, uh, like, you know, the, in the golden age of Hong Kong, Jackie Chan films, she, mm. I think she was a super cop. Um, and she, you think about Jackie Chan in those types of movies or generally, you know, any type of like actiony, funny, especially, you know, like from the 80s, 90s, our lead person, if they're not pitch perfect already, it's only because they're grumpy because they wanted to have some sort of contrast, right? Like uh, Don, Danny Glover's character in Lethal Weapon, you know, it's like mm -hmm. he's a little bit more terse, but that's because we've got chipper and happy Mel Gibson. Well, and he's also too old for that shit. He is too old for this. And he was too old for that shit in the first one. They made four. Or if you follow <laughs> It's Always Sunny, they made seven. <laughs> um, but what's nice about this one is that, you know, Michelle Yeoh, while she is on the side of trying to do the right thing, not only is she reluctant in that, but she also needs to improve who she is as a daughter and mother and partner in order to really accomplish the the, the main goal of, you know, the side of good here and that's that's nice to see because in these types of movies that's not usually the case and when it on you know the spare occasions when it there is something to be learned by the hero of the tale it can oftentimes feel very heavy-handed and and you know very melodramatic and this because the issues aren't very grand from a societal standpoint they are much smaller like being able to accept that your daughter has feelings being able to accept that your daughter is gay you know being able to accept that your husband's niceness is not a deficiency you know the, these much smaller aspects that she needs to correct and and accept it makes the weighty weight of the emotion of her change much more relatable uh, i guess speaking of the wayman character he is the 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 Wayman that we follow doesn't get a lot to do in the film until kind of the end when there is a realization that his way of navigating life actually is probably the most beneficial way of all the characters he has the least to change because there already is such a virtue to his existence to to, to his modality of thinking um so what again speaking very broadly uh, Corwin, what what made you what what did you think of uh, K. A. Kwan's character, Waymond, in this film? Um, 
I I fucking loved him. I loved him because it's short round and he was back from the abyss. Um, but in the film, he he really showed how, particularly at the end when he was having the discussion with the singer version of Evelyn in the alleyway, how there are so many different ways to go about finding happiness and success and essentially achieving the same goals as someone who is, you know, like Evelyn, extremely focused and unrelenting and, and just an absolute, you know, machine when it comes to just grinding and grinding and grinding and just hitting everything with a hammer until it breaks type of or works type of mindset. It was the perfect yin to her yang. And I don't think either one of those characters would be anywhere close to as effective as they were without the other one there bringing in their perspective. Um, I mean, you see it from... Uh, uh, they're not the alpha, but like the main storylines. I had to keep fighting characters. myself from saying alpha because yeah. there is an alpha <laughs> version in the film. Yeah. They're giving us the vocabulary that we can't use. Yes. Um, from the beginning, you're seeing someone who is desperate for happiness and to find happiness. There has to be a change. And in order to bring about that change, there needs to be a drastic catalyst, which is the divorce. And, you know, throughout this, even though he wants to start that conversation, even though he wants to start bringing about that change, He's still doing literally everything he can that he knows how to do in order to make Evelyn's life better and make, you know, showing that that love is there and, and there's that caring without, you know, necessarily having that happiness himself and just seeing how he expands into not just that's how he deals with Evelyn, but necessarily how he deals with every aspect of life uh i love he was he was my favorite character no oh, he's the fucking best yeah and and you know to understand how he his thinking with bringing the divorce uh to the table especially as cuz it's brought up so early in the film that you don't truly have a great sense of who his character is or the you know obviously the emotional impact he's going to have you know you look in retrospect it really is him willing to make any sacrifice for the happiness of those around him. And that's so fucking sweet. Um, and it is also a happiness that never gets cumbersome to watch. You know, like we talked about when we talked about the film, happy go lucky, how much, um, Oh my God, what's her fucking name killing me. I can't think of her fucking name, but the, the lead actress's um, happiness, how much that rubbed up against you and how you were not a fan of it. How, how annoying you found her and that never happened to google it i don't remember this either um fucking god damn it what is her name uh, she was oh, sally hawkins yep. yeah sally. um who was also in um fucking god shape of water there we go can't think of anything uh, yeah, that never happens with Wayman. His, in, in part because they, they balance his character between the, the very, very overly kind and sweet version that we see sporadically, but also with the more serious and focused and 
info dumpy character that we get in the first act and a half, two acts of the film. Um, it also is because I feel that we've seen so many, and you know, it's it's always tough to talk about. Um, oh my god, I can't think of a single fucking word today. Uh, tropes isn't necessarily the, the right word, but it, so often when we Cliches. see these types, maybe like. Uh, I can't think of an example off the rip, but I'm sure you know what I talk about when I mean when I say so many examples of somebody saying like in a film where two people who had good lives meet up later on. That, oh, I would have been so much happier being poor with you. Mm. Right. Like, I feel like I've seen that happen in and around pop culture and movies in in, in, uh, in other ways. But it, it, without having the ability to see that it lacks some of the emotional impact because if someone, you know, some rich person comes up to you and says, Oh, I would have been so much happier if I was poor, but I got to be poor with you. It's like, yeah, but you never have to fulfill that because you lived your life as a very rich person. And it's very easy to fixate on maybe the one aspect of your life that lacked a touch of fulfillment. And to say that that was where your source of happiness truly would have been when you never have to go find out. And in this version of the film, you know, that line happens so late in the film and you've gotten to see Wayman be so happy through so many flashbacks and, and iterations of Michelle Yeoh's, um, you know, recollection of her various selves and of flashbacks from her own self that, you know, it's true. And and to have someone care so deeply for Michelle Yeoh uh, of Evelyn um, and serve as a real grounding point emotionally uh, really lent itself to the emotional impact of the film. You know, and it's one of the things that really, I think, helps also understand the it's it's the difference between Wayman is like the guiding light for where Michelle Yeoh needs to understand how much she's brought along from her father. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the 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 generational trauma that the film is trying to build, and I think very successfully, is from Gong Gong, who is uh, James Hong's character, who is so great in everything. And is so I was so happy when he popped movie. in. Oh, he's the best. And it's great getting to see him speak Cantonese. Um, so infrequently does it feel like we get to see foreign actors do American films in their native tongue. So that was very nice. Um, but, you know, the, the, the lineage of that generational trauma is that you know, James Hong never gave full approval to Evelyn and Evelyn's never giving full approval down to her daughter. And, you know, Wayman exists outside of that because he's not part of that family, right? He has that a tie to uh, Joy, obviously, being her father, but, it, you know, it, she, that's not the parental dynamic that she is chafing against. It is with her mother. And so Wayman serves as also a figure for Michelle Yeoh to understand better, you know, how to interact with uh, the people around her in a way that is healthier, that is not the way that her father did, with a glaring disapproval in every direction over every facet of existence and instead look upon it more favorably and, and be kinder and that that has been what has been holding her back from having a good relationship with her daughter um speaking of the daughter i guess mm. uh she is i mean these are the main three characters uh you know <clears throat> the, the film centers around the the daughter's deep sense of depression and dread and lack of ability to see a, 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 some kind of future for herself or, or dissatisfaction with not just her station in life as we see her in the beginning of the film, but in all stations of every life she's lived. Just that deep, daunting 
nihilistic depression um, that sets the whole events of the movie into place. So Corwin of Jobu Tapaki slash Joy Wong, what did you think of her character? I don't want this to come across as a slight, but the actress was shockingly wonderful. Like I, I don't want to say that I have a, you know, acute ability to recognize, you know, acting skill and things like that. But I can't tell you the last time I watched an actor or actress for the first time, not really knowing who they were, you know, not knowing where they came from, anything like that, and been like blown away by their ability. Like maybe Adam Driver in uh, uh, Marriage or Marriage Story. I don't know if I've seen him in anything before that. Um, I know you just talked oh, about like how you're 10 over ten years Driver. into his career. He was in Inside Lewin Davis. I remember I him like from Inside Lewin Davis, but I mean, do you, do you remember his character from Inside Lewin Davis? It, it's kind of a how could you forget the guy that goes empty space. space. Plus, he is a uh, oh Tom, what's his face rip? Because um, that movie is based on real characters. Oh god, I can't think of what his fucking name was, but he's based off of a real folk singer. So yes, I yeah whatever that character. Fuck I, you. Fuck. Whatever. She was excellent. I enjoyed her. She had all of the teenage angst and all of the adult emotional control in her acting. It was very good. Fuck you. I love that she brought a great sense of camp to the film that I think it really needed. The, what do you mean by that? Like, she so isn't taking things seriously. <laughs> yeah. To, to where it drives home that's, her point. You that's know? a very real 17-year-old girl who has all of the power in the world and nothing to do with it. She is almost certainly in her early 20s. <laughs> okay. She yeah. is a college student. I do remember that now. Good. Yeah. Good, good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it, it lends itself to the film very well. It is a film where, you know, like she beats a man to death with a pair of gigantic dildos. Like it's a film where multiple people are fighting over who gets to shove the butt plug shaped award up <laughs> their ass. Like it's a campy <laughs> film. Michelle Yeoh plays it pretty straight, but uh, Stephanie, Stephanie Shu, like her character really leans into how ridiculous everything is. And she has such a blase attitude towards the insane and, and, you know, such a, you know, laissez-faire type of like, not not laissez-faire, but like a a very just like laid back, like whatever kind of um, indifference that not just makes the camp of the film more effective, but also makes the plot more effective. Like part of her point is that nothing matters. And if nothing matters, as your as your philosophy, while you're trying to destroy the universe, essentially the multiverse, essentially, mm-hmm. then you can't be overly ambitious in that front, because then that is inherently counterintuitive or indirect in, in countenance to your philosophy, because then something matters, right? Destruction mm-hmm. matters, so. To have her be so diffuse as a as a personality, I thought was wonderful. And I think, like, you're right. Stephanie Shu nailed that part of it. 
like on the fucking like the little head clicks that she does when she's changing universes are uh, was perfect you know it it so well captured how casual everything was and that casualness born out of a sheer indifference wonderful performance um and i love the fact that you know the idea that the daughter was gay only mattered to Michelle Yeoh <laughs> and that like Joy calls her out on it in the movie like oh my god this in this universe you still care about that because <laughs> it's like yeah a movie where like the big bad is that my daughter's gay and I don't know how to handle it is we're way past that <laughs> you know what it, I mean that's two decades ago nobody cares easy yeah exactly it, it would not be a self-sustaining plot because it's like so done it 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 it's so retrospective of like society that it's not even worth looking into but it's which is why it gets brought up here and there but isn't made a big deal of because it's like fuck this is such a failing it's it, it's it's such a failing for this time period we're acknowledging that she has failed in this respect as a mother but we're not spending much time on it cuz it's just not worth it <laughs> The real issue is the fact that I have an emotional dread and it, it's that's a difficult thing to convey, you know, casually like person to person, whereas the difficulty in grappling with the homosexuality of the daughter is much more tangible uh, for a, a, a visual demonstration of how that mother has failed her daughter. You're so out of touch that you're not even giving her the support on the small thing of her of her queerness let alone the big thing of the fact that she was apparently massively depressed yes so i guess to that end what did you think of this general overarching plot that is nothing matters let's just end it um i don't know if the story matters at all for this film like the overall arcing story uh in the sense in uh, the same sense as i don't think a story has ever truly mattered more to what it's trying to say um obviously nothing matters and that's true in the the scope of this film and in the scope of the lives that we drone on through every day but as for like the actual story, like what could matter more and also less than an IRS audit? I feel like that was such a perfect little encapsulation of everything happening in the story to someone who it's happening to. And in a sense, really when you've done something wrong or even when you haven't like an IRS audit could be your entire universe. And in the same time, it's, Fucking whatever, dude. You're going to get audited. What, what? You paid your taxes? Cool. You're fine. You don't? Uh, okay. You don't have enough shit? Okay. You're fine. Blah, 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 blah. Um, that was a lot of words and a lot of rambling and no coherent way of saying yes. No, I, 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 I think you nailed it because, you know, the core of that is that the stakes are so large but also so incredibly small like the stakes of the film at large seem to be the deterioration of everyone's universe 
but they they are also the stakes of this mother and daughter staying close and you know repairing a relationship um they are the stakes of i hope i did my taxes right <laughs> you know and they, they are the stakes of i need to be a better mother and a better better daughter you know like they're 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 very local stakes they're they're not very you know they're not marvel-esque of what we're doing here is important for the lives of every being in the universe and we're going to make that weight known and felt that partially those stakes are kind of there but it is very much so more you know slimmed down into the handful the very small handful of characters that we actually get to know in this film for again how big the film feels it is a very small list of characters um i i also think and much to your point i i think you gave a really good summary of it like the idea that this film is so the story carries so much weight because it's such a high concept that it also doesn't really spend too much time concerning itself with it for large chunks of the film because it also does use it very effectively as a springboard for fights and action scenes and jokes, which is also very much so to its benefit. You know, taking breaks from what is a big philosophical you know, concern to punch people and shove stuff up your ass is fucking hilarious and fun. Like the the movie is fun. This is not a Jean Paul Sartre play, you know. It it is, it is an it is a, a fun movie where goofy shit happens and there's a bunch of great fight choreography. And so, while the theory of the film is super interesting and could be its own discussion, it also very much just doesn't have to be, which is great, excellent, well done. Because you mentioned it, the fight choreography felt so um, like such an homage and such a similar style to like the, the Jackie Chan Hong Kong era films. I loved it. He was the movie was actually originally written with him in mind. No kidding. No, no, not kidding at all. I'm, I'm very happy with the choice they did go with, um, but I would have loved to see a version of this with Jackie Chan. Oh, yeah. I love him. Uh, yeah, they made several changes, and part of this, part of the the changes, was due to the fact that this is um, as funny as it sounds to say. It is partially um, reflective of Daniel Kwan's own life, it really in regards to the relationship aspect. You know, Daniel Kwan had a fraught relationship with his mother for certain stretches because of, you know, the family dynamic, uh, especially with uh, immigrant parents. Um, he is also gay, which, which again, is that kind of tether to that storyline um, and having to kind of break some barriers and, and uh, alter a path going forward with his own family served as part of the basis for what became this movie. Um, yeah, so uh, it's a huge movie. It, uh, there's so much stuff in here we haven't talked about. We very readily could. Um, however, I think it's time that we start wrapping stuff up. Um do you have anything to say before we move into final ratings and reviews? Um, I'm excited to see what they come up with next. These are directors added to the bulletin. You got to watch Swiss Army Man. The yes. the pitch to Swiss Army Man that I think is how they got 
Paul Dano involved. I forget if they this was the pitch for Daniel Radcliffe or Paul Dano, but one of the two leads was the Daniels went up to them. Let's say it was Paul went up to Paul and said that the film is such a film in which the first fart makes you laugh and the last fart makes you cry. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's a good oh, I did disagree. Movie. Yeah, yeah, you go check it out. Um, anywho. Uh, I started with the discussion thing, so I'll start with the reviews. This is like a four out of five from four and a half out of five. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. This is my second time watching it. I saw it in theaters and then I so I must have seen it within the last like six months or so. And seeing it again was still great. I cried in the movie theater when I saw this movie. I loved nice. it. I I the action is so well done. The jokes work so well. The VFX, which we didn't get the chance to talk about, are are fun. They're so effective. And the story's great. Uh, everyone involved was great. It was great seeing Kei Hei Kwan. It was great seeing James Hong. It's awesome to see Michelle Yeoh in general and get award love for this. Stephanie Hsu was awesome. Jamie Lee Curtis. I love Jamie Lee Curtis. I love that she she's still amazing. quirky, fun projects to be. You know how courageous it is to be a woman of any age in Hollywood and to pick a role where you're done as frumpy as she is done here? She puts on uh, a fat suit. She is not made up to look good at all. And that takes real courage um, because of the 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 perception of women, especially as they age in Hollywood. And I, she did such a great fucking job. Um, mm-hmm. Love this movie. Four and four and a half out of five. I'm with you. Four and a half out of five. Excellent. All right. Then let's bring it in to next week's picks. We are still... Rolling with Golden Globe nominees as we prepare for um, Oscar nominations. Uh, Corwin, which one you got? I am going with um, one that we discussed before the pod. Glass. The last. Glass. Oh, Glass Onion. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Knives out. Glass Onion, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Um, I'll my pick um, is the Banshees of Sharon, which is currently streaming on HBO Max. So check those out. Um, We're almost done with a a lot of the best picture nominees for these categories. So we'll start moving to the acting, directing awards and writing awards after that. But uh, moving right along. So uh, Banshees of Sharon, Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Check them out before next week's episode or not. Not a problem. Um, in the meantime, if you would like to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at uh, Big Screen Juice. If you'd like to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. If you'd like to follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. If you would like to send emails to the show, you can do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. And until next time, y'all have a good one. Bye.